0: Nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. That's the way 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 ends. Look back at chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Excuse me. Again, more things that Corey does that, <laughs> that when he's not here, I, I find myself doing. First Corinthians 12 ends with this idea that there is something more to it than gifts. Earnestly desire higher gifts, but, or and, I will show you still a more excellent way. So we pick up this morning with, with Paul having just reflected on the beauty of the body of Christ through the use of spiritual gifts, and the diversity of the body of Christ through the use of spiritual gifts, and the purpose for these spiritual gifts and then he ends that verse, or ends that chapter saying, but yet still I will show you a more excellent way. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 11, we hear these words from Paul. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another Gifts of healing by the one spirit into another, the working of miracles to another, prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another, various kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these things are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There's a lot that we covered in chapter 12 before our purpose this morning as we kind of just really quickly recap chapter 12 before we jump into chapter 13. I think this is where a lot of the meat of chapter 12 can reside and we can get a lot of what chapter 12 is doing for us in that passage that I just read. That passage highlights for us three truths. One is that gifts are empowered by the one and the same spirit. Verse 11 says, all these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Our gifts are from God and apart from God, we would not have any of the gifts. So our grounds for boasting in ourselves does not exist. And our grounds for using our God-given gifts only for ourselves does not exist. All right. That's one truth. The second truth is that the gifts are spread around by the spirit of God. He said, all these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's chapter 12, verse 11. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The spirit gives the gifts and the spirit distributes the gifts. That's what that's saying. Here's a third, here's a number, here's a third important truth. The gifts are given for the common good of all the saints. He says in chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The spiritual gifts are not for the sole benefit of the one who possesses it. By the time we reach verse 27 in chapter 12 then, Paul is kind of putting a nice little bow on these little truths, or these three important truths, rather, that we've we've just addressed. The Spirit grants and empowers the gifts in us. The Spirit distributes them proportionately, not pouring everything on one person. And the third truth is that He is doing all of this for the good of the entire church. So in summary, Paul then gets to verse 27, and he concludes the entire chapter of chapter 12 this way. Let's read together. He says, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No, is the answer. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. You know, this text affirms, again, what Corey so masterfully articulated on last week, is that each of us brings something unique and special to the body of Christ that is spirit-given and spirit-driven. But none of us possess all of it, and that is by design. Because we are intended not only to serve one another with our gifts, but we are also intended to depend on one another's gifts in order to fully realize our potential as the body of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what chapter 12 teaches us. And yet, it doesn't appear that all is well in Corinth. They got gifts, but it doesn't appear that all is well there. These gifts, instead of being used to unite, it seems that they're being used to sow more discord, to sow more chaos, and drive a wedge in between the saints rather than building the bridges to connect them. And so the question is, why and how? What's happening where all of these gifts are prevalent and yet the church is divided and not united in the presence of these gifts? And that takes us from the very last verse in chapter 12 to chapter 13. Again, chapter 12, what does he say the very last verse? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? Chapter 13. How many of you have heard a sermon preached on 1 Corinthians 13? Anybody? How many of you have recited or read or heard it recited or read at a wedding? First Corinthians 13, anybody? All right. Definitely one of the go-to passages for Christians. Now, how many of you, let's, let's see all those hands. Everybody, hands that have either heard a sermon preached or have heard it recited or read at a wedding. All right. Now, how many of you have Heard it, preached, or recited in the context of using our spiritual gifts in the life of the church. All right, not that many. Some, some people are like. Well, I mean, probably heard it somewhere. I don't know. Maybe you ask me to remember all these sermons, Crawford. What are you doing? It's not. The point being is that this is not something that's often tied to spiritual gifts. Love is often kind of snatched from the context of chapters 12 through 14, and it's treated like a a, a passage that Paul is just talking as an aside now. But what Paul is doing here is Paul is giving the instruct or giving the how as to how spiritual gifts are to be used towards uniting the church, towards building up the church. This is what this chapter is for. One scholar writes about this passage that many Christians assume the chapter is primarily about love between a man and a woman, that it is written to provide guidance and insight for married couples. Now, it is perfectly appropriate, of course... For married people to learn how to love each other better through the reading and studying of this passage. However, the chapter is primarily about living in Christian community in a way that glorifies God. And that is by learning to treat other members of Christ's body the way He has treated us with self-sacrificing, other oriented love. End quote. This passage is not primarily about marriage. It's about how do we use our gifts in such a way to drive us towards unity and edification of the church. And the answer is we use them through love. We use them with love. Love is the most excellent way that gives our gifts the fuel they need in order to be effective in their working. In fact, you cannot have a God-honoring display of gifts Absent of love. If love is not shaping the activities of the spirit, if love is not shaping the operations of the spirit, if it's not shaping the use of the gifts of the spirit, then it will not be in accord with the spirit and it will not yield the fruit of the spirit. In chapter 13, Paul gives us three ways in which love is shown to be a higher good a greater way, a more excellent way. First, he shows us what happens when love is absent. Second, he teaches us about the nature of love. And then thirdly, he speaks to the endurance of love. First, the absence of love. What happens when love is absent? Paul says, he tells us in the very first three verses in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels that have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith and so as to remove mountains that have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love again, I gain nothing. Here are a few things that stand out to me about Paul's first sentences here about love. The first is the personal touch that Paul adopts as he discusses it. I, Paul, the apostle, am not above this instruction. It's almost as if he's saying to us, no no matter my leadership position, no matter my authority, no matter the calling God has assigned to me and the gifting that comes with that calling, if I were to choose another way besides love, I would cease to be useful. How often do we first... Look to others' lack of love towards us versus beginning with the need for us to be more loving. Paul has turned this into a personal application with the words I. But also Paul is using exaggerated language. One of the unfortunate mistakes that we sometimes make when reading Scripture is missing the different styles of writing that the biblical authors are using when making their point. For example, in the first three verses, we often try to make deep doctrines about the nature and the use of gifts and miss the very point that Paul is making. We'll read verse 1, for example, and we'll hear Paul say, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And we'll walk away and then we'll think to ourselves, wait a second, Paul, did you say there's a tongue of angels that we should be speaking? That's not the point Paul is making, though. Paul is making the point that If I had a tongue of angels, but had not love, it wouldn't matter. Paul is making the point not that he has moved mountains with his faith, but that if he had the faith that was powerful to move a mountain and had not love, it would not make a difference. Paul is not making the point that he understands all mysteries, and he understands and possesses all knowledge. He's making the point that if he had, that kind of understanding and did not have love, it would not make a difference. Do you understand? There's There's an exaggeration that he's making to prove the point that it does not matter how eloquent you are, how powerful you are, how generous you are. If you do not have love, it does not matter. When love is absent, proclamation and eloquence Is nothing. He says you can speak like 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 it like your voice comes from heaven. But if you do not have love, it does not matter. When, When love is absent, power and knowledge do not matter, Paul says. You can, you can have that kind of power where you are performing miracles on demand and you are moving mountains and you, and you understand everything. I mean, you can, we can come to you and we can ask you any question and you have an answer to all of the questions says, if you don't have love, then you are nothing. Notice, how Paul, notice what Paul does there. You know, power and knowledge oftentimes is what we hinge our identities on. And Paul says, no, nah, you can have all the power. You can have all the knowledge. You're still nothing if you don't have love. And then he says, when love is absent, generosity and philanthropy are Nothing say, how is that possible, right, to, to, be, to give everything that you have away and to, and, to, and to submit your body to be burned and still not possess love? How in the world is that even possible? Well, there is a kind of generosity that gives only or ultimately to get. You see this kind of generosity in the business owner, for example, who gives money away because of how well the public will receive that generosity and support his or her business more. You see this kind of generosity in the influential member of the community who will give his or her time away because because of what it will do for their reputation amongst their peers and amongst the public. You see this kind of generosity sometimes in our, own, in our own use of gifts and talents, even in the church. Sometimes it happens when we give our time and our talent and our resources a way not to ultimately glorify God and serve somebody, but in order to be recognized. And When that happens, our highest motivation is no longer love of God and love of neighbor, but it is love of self. That's what it means to give everything away and still not have love. Here's how you know when you're giving to get. When you give a thing and you don't get what you're expecting back, you stop giving it. Or when you give a thing, you give your gift, you give your time, you give your talent, you give your treasure. And the joy of the opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the world and offer your service to him is overshadowed by the bitterness and the anger and the frustration and the sadness that you recognize, that you, that, that, that you feel when you recognize that you didn't receive what you thought you was going to get back forgiven. Does that make sense? Has anybody here anybody in the room ever experienced that before? I certainly have. Gave something. Thought that I was going to get something in return, didn't get what I was thinking I was going to get in return, and all of a sudden I'm mad that I gave it. Which, what did you give it for? Right? Boy, there's some stories I could tell y'all about my giving habits in my house with the bride and love of my life, Candy Crawford. And things don't quite pan out like I was thinking that they were panning out. Now I'm upset by my sacrifice. Do you love her or not? What what, what was that about? It's about love of self. Are you tracking with that? Here's what's interesting about the first three verses in this passage. All of these verses, if we read them, and we didn't have Paul's admonishment about the love piece. You know, we found somebody that spoke with the tongues of men and angels and found somebody that moved mountains with their faith and had all kinds of knowledge and understanding, found somebody that was giving away stuff just, just, you know, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, everybody gets a car. You know, if we found somebody like that, we would, we would place them on a throne and make them king or queen. Those those Aren't aren't those our qualities? Aren't those our attributes? Paul says, wait a second. Did you check the love? Because they can have all of that and still not have love. And if they don't have love, then they are useless. Think about how many times we appoint people and we elevate people and we esteem people that are absent of love, but have all of the other qualities. And we say, well, you know, the love thing, who cares about that? Paul says, no, that matters more than all of the other qualities. In verse 4, he turns our attention to the nature of love. So the absence of love, what happens when love is not there? Then the nature of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not Insists on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does love look like? That's the question. What does love look like? What is love's nature? What is its qualities? What is its attributes? Well, the first thing Paul says is that love is patient. And love is kind. Patience is the ability to endure evil. To put up with wrongs committed against you over an, over an extended period of time and to do so not merely by absorbing the blow, but returning the blow with generosity and affection. Love does that. God calls us to love like that. Patience allows us to endure through wrongs and to do so without losing composure. Patience asks us, how long can we keep showing love? How many wrongs can we absorb and return with generosity and affection? How deep of a wound can we take and maintain our Christ-like posture? These are the questions that love asks of us. Love love is often not what we do to those who are always nice to us. Love is the genuine good we return to those who even harm us. And so patience is the idea of not just simply receiving a blow, but responding to a blow with generosity and affection. How are you using your gift in a patient way? How are you using your talent in a patient way. How are you using your goods and your treasure and your time in a patient way? Are you withholding your gifting and your talent and your treasure and your time because you're just tired of people? Stop chuckling back there, Candy Crawford. I get it. I get get it. We're irritating. I get it. I'm to myself in that. We are irritating. So I get why you would want to withhold your gift and your time and your talent and your treasure from me. And I get it. We're petty. And so I understand why you would want to withhold your gift and your time and your talent and your treasure from us. We don't always give our best. And and yet, and yet, God is calling you to exercise what he has given you in a patient, bearing, and long-suffering way. Now, kindness is the exact opposite of the evil that this patience is working really, really hard to respond to. It is what the uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary calls an extension of good. That's what kindness is. Do you extend good even in the midst of bad and ill dealings? Do you communicate good? even in the midst of harsh treatment. Paul says love does not envy. It does not boast. It does not envy. It's a, envy is a quality best described as a craving of what others have and a seizing because they have it. It's the discontentment that one feels towards the happiness of others. Now sometimes you might not, you might not, you might not say anything It might not necessarily lead to any words. It's just a sort of of kind of posture. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If you could give a compliment, but you ain't going to give that compliment. They've they've heard it enough. They don't need to hear from me. I mean, everybody tell them how good their cooking is. Why, why, Why should I tell them how good their cooking is? Everybody told them how nice their car is. Why should I tell them how nice their car is? There's a certain kind of seething, just lying under the radar that feels resentment towards other people's happiness. You know, obviously, we think about possessions as the clears indicate or the clearest way in which envy plays out but we all know that it's possibly that it's possible rather to envy one's house or one's car or one's money one's one's not just that but one's talent one's gifting one's position sometimes we envy those things that can't be packaged in physical boxes right sometimes we envy the happiness that one enjoys we just don't like them being happy. Why are they always happy? Of course, we don't say that out loud because we realize how, how jerkish that would look, right? So we just think it to ourselves always happy. Or it's the attention that they receive or the popularity that they enjoy. We look at them, we smile at them, but inwardly we think, we think to ourselves they don't deserve that. I do. I serve the Lord, I put in the work, I've been faithful, I'm smarter than them, I'm wiser than them. How did they get that and I don't have it? That's envy. You tracking with that? Here's another thing about envy too, it's it's profoundly deceiving. It can fool us, it can lie deep inside of us and it rarely announces itself. It just looms in the shadow of all of our motives, right? Just hangs out in our motives. Hangs out in our attitudes hangs out in the way that we think. The family member that everybody appears to like more than you. You don't have to say it out loud that you envy that, but you just make sure that your family knows that that family member is not as perfect as everybody thinks they are. You talking with that? Love doesn't boast either. You may be wondering why people put envy and boasting next to each other, why Paul put envy and boasting next to each other. Well, it is because, quite frankly, they're both concerned with the exact same things, self-glory. You see, envy is experienced when we think somebody else has the glory that that we deserve, but boasting is experienced when we are trying to manufacture that glory for ourselves. But it's the same thing. It's, the same, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. So whereas, you know, envy would be, well, I don't have to tell them how great they are. Everybody already, already tells them that. Boasting is, I can't wait to tell you how great I am. Can't wait to share all these things that God is doing in my life. Look at God. Right, right, right. Look at God, you know, doing all these things. That's boasting. Are you tracking with that? So here's the question Is my gifting by the Spirit, given to me by the Spirit for the good of the church, being used as a tool for boasting? Am I am I am I envious of someone else's gifting? And finding subtle ways to tear down or just simply not build up rather than celebrating the work of God in their life and encouraging the full use of their gift and even leaning dependently on them to reap the blessing that their gifting will bring me and bring the church. That's what it means to love through envy and to love past boasting. Love is also not arrogant or rude. Love carries with it the amazing ability to restrain oneself from having too high of regard for themselves. It will not allow you to keep putting yourself first. Love carries with it a desire to do good to others. It carries with it a a conviction that causes you to prize and value others as children of God, as genuine brothers and sisters. Love leaves no room for high and lofty opinions of ourselves. Now, love is not arrogant or rude. In other words, you see these kind of pairs, they make sense together. Because why, why, why do I say that? Well... Rudeness is certainly connected to arrogance because rudeness is ultimately valuing, uh, it, it, it comes down to the valuing of people and how we value them in our treatment of them. Arrogance is more so how we value them in our attitude, but rudeness is how we value them in our treatment. Does that make sense? Rudeness is often the outpouring of an arrogant attitude. Arrogance is the posture, but rudeness is the expression or the actions that are fueled by arrogance. Rudeness comes from an attitude that simply says, you're not worthy enough to be treated better. That's why you got some people that'll, you know, come into, go into a restaurant and treat the server like trash. Because they made a value judgment. Are you tracking with that? They've made a value judgment. And the higher they think themselves to be, the more rude they treat the people around them. The, or the less people receive, uh, receive good treatment. So like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I think myself a little, more be- a little better than the, than the server. So I treat the server rude, but I don't treat these other people rude who I think are on my level. Well, if I start thinking I'm a little bit above them, I'll start treating them rude as well. Does that make sense? And the higher I see myself, the, the, the less people get any other treatment but rudeness from me. And so rudeness is an outpouring of arrogance. And the ruder you are, it typically tra- tracks that the more arrogant you are. Because it's about value. You show me a person that is rude to everybody, and I'm more than likely, I won't say all the time, but I'm more than likely able to show you a person that has an extreme fondness for their own opinions and their own actions, and they see all others as inferior and merely bridges to satisfy their own needs. Love does not insist on its own way. One of the great attributes of love is the deference of our own way. Love says the world will not end if I don't get the final say. Paul continues, he says love is not irritable or resentful. In other words, wrongdoing and evil doesn't boil love over. Evil doesn't boil it over, but evil doesn't simmer love. It's not easily provoked. It, it doesn't break easy. It's not pierced easy. It bears. It forgives. It endures. Yes, I know. Some hurts sting very bad, and they leave us deeply wounded. But love for God perseveres. It won't allow us to just simply take on a posture of enduring bitterness. Love for God Paul says won't even allow us to remain resentful. It won't allow us to keep a record. Resentfulness is the ideal of holding an accounting book of wrongs that are done against you, always calling it back, using it when you do wrong. Right? Like you got you got your pocket, you got your, you got pocketbook of wrongs for the person, and as soon as you do something wrong, they're like, "Man, why you do that?" Well, well, you know, what about what about last week? You know, what about three weeks ago? What about four weeks ago? It's like we're not talking about four weeks ago. We're talking about right now. Love is not resentful. Do you understand that, saints? It doesn't keep the accounting book of wrong. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think Paul needs to say that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing? Why would Christians rejoice in wrongdoing? That's a good question, isn't it? Because we often love to rejoice in wrongdoing when wrongdoing is accomplishing our goals. We will denounce wrongdoing unless wrongdoing is doing something good for us. Then we'd be like, well, you know, I kind of see why they did that. Are Are you tracking? Paul says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Getting back to the love of self, right? Love doesn't necessarily need my way so desperately that I'm willing to celebrate when wrong happens to get my way. Love doesn't do it. And then Paul says, love bears all, it believes all, it hopes all, it endures all. Basically, saints, love walks hard with people. Listen, if we are following the culture on how to love, we're not going to love like this we're not going to love like this. In the midst of a you know in the midst of a day where all sides are you know ready to throw a pitchfork at any wrong thing that you say, they're ready to dismiss you. We're not going to love like this. In the midst of a culture that is constantly talking about, you know, toxicity and and trigger we're not going to love like this. Because at the first sign of wrongdoing at the first sign of evil, at the first sign of hurt. The culture's out. You dismissed. I'm wiping my hands of you. But Paul says that is not love. You can't use your time, your talent, and your treasure that way. You cannot withhold your gifting. Because if you do it that way, then you are not operating in accordance to the spirit. You're not promoting the unity and the edification of the church. That's what Paul is saying. Love is doing something. Notice that what Paul is taking on is this active posture towards love. see, love just moves, moves past the emotions and moves past the feelings. Now, it certainly can be impacted by our emotions, and it certainly can impact our emotions. But it is more than emotions, according to Paul. For Paul, love is doing something. Love, when it is exercised in our giftings and our talents, when it is expressed in the body of Christ towards one another, when it is expressed towards the easy to get along with as well as the very difficult to get along with, it is doing something. It is active. It's not merely passive feeling, it is a fierce and enduring collection of actions that move past the opposition, that move past the difficulty, that move past the bitterness, that moves past the sin in our hearts, that moves past the sin in others' hearts, towards selfless, sacrificial action. That's what love does. Love is also constantly considering the well-being of others. That's what we see when we read through this, don't we? It's constantly. It doesn't operate or work to gain its own advantage. It doesn't operate to manipulate its own gain, to manipulate towards its own gain. It's, It's operating for the good of others. How do you know when you're operating in love? Well, how much thought have you given to the question of who is this benefiting besides me? Who is this act serving besides me? That's when you know you're beginning to operate in love, when you're asking yourself, who is it serving and benefiting besides me? Lastly, the last, first, last couple of verses, chapter 13, verse 8, the endurance of love, real quickly. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Here's where love really separates itself from all of the other gifts. The superiority of love is found in its endurance. When everything else is gone, love will remain. Love surpasses gifts in its eternal value because while gifts are being used to bring us closer to completion and closer to maturity, the day is coming when we all shall be complete and mature. No gifts will be needed to mature us because we will finally be fully and wholly mature, completely shaped, completely molded, and completely controlled in the image and likeness of Christ, all for his glory and all for his fame. So that's where love separates from all the other gifts. The gifts are being used to mature us. Love says, when the maturity happens, I'm still here. Verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then shall, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He says... When he was a child, he spoke as a child, meaning that children reason based on their limited scope of knowledge and their limited maturity. And they ponder and they wander on things that are absolutely clear to adults because their insight has not reached that of a full adult. Paul says, yeah, that's, that's us when we're not operating in love. You understand? But then he says this, and this is important. For now we see in a mirror, mirror dimly, but then face to face. More so a glass than a mirror because the picture is not how we see ourselves as much as it, uh, as much as it is about how we see God. Because he says we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In other words, we're going to look at God face to face one day. So he's talking about this idea that love is going to be present when we look at God face-to-face. The gifts, they're, they're going to be gone because prophecy is not going to be needed anymore. Special interpretation of tongues is not going to be needed anymore. We're going to see God face-to-face at that point. And when we see God face-to-face, love will remain. Does that make sense? Now note about this scripture used as justification for the ceasing of gifts. We're talking about a personal face-to-face encounter. We're not talking about the Bible here. You know, it, some people will say, well, the gifts don't exist anymore at all because when the Bible's complete, then we. No, 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 no. No, we're talking about seeing God face to face. Now, how those operations of gifts are, not, not, trying to, not trying to have that debate today. But in terms of are, do gifts exist or not, can't use this text to to develop that, that conclusion is my point. Does that make sense? All right, so why should I love like this? Why should I love like this? One, because God calls you to it and requires it of you. John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not not seen. God requires it of you. He requires it of you. So much so that it is now a part of the nature of the Christian to love. The Spirit is in you, meaning that love is there, present. You are able to love. He doesn't require it of you and then don't empower you for it. He requires it of you because he's empowered you by his spirit to do it. But also, why should I love like this? Because God has loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved you. So much so that he sent Jesus to die on your behalf. Why should you love like this? Because he loved you greater than this. And why should you continue to love like this? Because God's love never ends. What did we read this morning? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. God's love never ends. Why should you continue? Even after, you know, even after being hurt, even after after being wounded, why should you keep trying? Why should you exhibit patience when nobody around you seems to be patient? Why should you be kind and generous when it doesn't seem like many people care about being kind and generous? Because God has loved you And his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, we love you.